I want to be free. I think. Sometimes I'm not sure I really know what freedom means. Is it no curfew, a new phone, and the car keys? Or is it something more? Being a Christian means I'm free, right? More than where I'm born or what I have or don't have. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. Sounds great in a song, but it seems like it comes with a lot of responsibility. Like I have to live a certain way. Like there are things my friends can do that I'm not supposed to do. So who has freedom, them or me? I get what I'm free from, my past, my parents' mistakes, having to be the perfect daughter or get into the perfect college or have an insta-perfect life every single day, which is all great, but what am I free for? Freedom is exhilarating and overwhelming. It's like you just got out of prison and you're not sure where to go next. I mean, we all want to be free, right? But then what? Well, if you could be free from one thing, one thing that's keeping you from living the life you want to live, what one thing would you want to be free from? A bad habit, a painful past, fear, guilt, shame, anger, regret. If you could be free of one thing, what would you want to be free from? Now, freedom's a wonderful thing. Like Rachel, the young woman we just met in our video, we all want to be free. Free to be ourselves, free to chase our dreams. But freedom can be frightening, too. What do we do with it once we get it? I'm thinking about that newly released prisoner that Rachel was wondering about. For years, he's been locked up, told what he could do, where he could go, what he could eat, who he could talk to, and suddenly he's free standing in the sunshine, outside the prison walls, new set of clothes and $100 in his pocket. But what does he do now? Where does he go? Who does he seek out? He has his freedom, but does he know what to do with it? Many don't, unfortunately. Too many find their way back behind bars again to a life that's familiar but not free. Or how many young people, like Rachel herself, can't wait to be free from their parents' supervision. Free, finally, to do what they want, when they want, with whom they want, and not have to report to anyone about it. Only to find themselves, not too much time later, hemmed in once again, maybe by, by the, the crowd that they're hanging with, or by society's expectations of them, or even by their own fears and insecurities. Here's a, uh, freedom is a wonderful thing. My chains are gone. I've been set free, we like to sing. But what are we free from and what are we free for? This fall, we're talking about grace, undeserved favor, unexpected kindness, unbelievable goodness. And in particular, we're talking about the grace of God. The grace, the goodness of God shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, preachers are kind of famous for describing grace as 
God's riches at Christ's expense. See what we did there? Yeah, pretty clever, right? Some of you, some of you have been wondering how long it would be before I finally got around to this well-worn definition of grace, and I tried to fight it off as long as I could, but it just happens to work today. God's riches at Christ's expense. All the riches of God. Forgiveness. Acceptance. Belonging. Healing. Restoration. Eternal life. All of it is now available to us through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, freedom is one of those riches. But what are we free from and what are we free for? We better be sure we know the answers to those questions or we may find ourselves exchanging one set of chains for another or, in the words of the pretenders, back on the chain gang. Did you get that back in the chain gang? I, I guess not. Okay, anyway, it's a song, a good song. So let's go back to this letter to the Galatians, a letter that we've been looking at here together for this fall. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in this region called Galatia who were making the very same mistake we've just been talking about. Having been set free by their trust in Christ, they now found themselves becoming prisoners or slaves all over again. And so Paul writes them a letter about it. Now, this can be a tricky letter to study, which is maybe why we haven't gone after Galatians in depth before. For one thing, uh, Paul's message here is, is deeply connected to first century Judaism, which is not familiar to most of us. And for another thing, Paul's, Paul's reasoning in this letter is not... It's not as logical and linear as some of his letters are, like Romans, where he just rationally walks us through uh, theology. This letter to the Galatians is kind of emotionally charged, and so Paul rambles a little bit. He goes off on a tangent, and, and he names something like freedom, and then he goes off, and then he comes back to it again. It's kind of circular in its reasoning. So as we look at it today, we're going to take a few passages and put them all together under this heading called freedom. I think it'll help if we read them all together, kind of back and forth the way we sometimes do, and then we'll take them apart a little bit. So Galatians chapter, we're going to begin in chapter 3, we're going to finish in chapter 5, and uh, I'll read the, the regular print, you can read the bold. So in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Well, you can see what I mean. It's a little bit dense and a little bit insider-ish. 
but let's see if we can make some sense out of it. Uh, You may have noticed that the word grace doesn't even appear anywhere in this passage. But as we've learned, grace is a dominant theme of this letter. Maybe you remember Paul's strong opening rebuke to these readers. Back in chapter 1, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Paul's upset that after bringing these Galatians the good news that they could be saved, forgiven, and set free simply by trusting Christ, these false teachers have come in behind him and convinced these believers that it's not enough to simply trust Christ. They also have to keep all of the Jewish laws. Now, that that was bad news for the Jewish believers because they knew how many laws there were and they knew how hard it was to keep them. It was an impossible burden. It was even worse news for the Gentile believers because they weren't familiar with these laws and it meant they had to become Jews in order to be considered full-fledged followers of Christ. And so it was a double burden. So Paul's big idea in this letter and in this particular section is that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. (laughs) That we can't earn our way into God's favor by being good enough or religious enough or sincere enough. We can only receive forgiveness by faith, trusting in what Christ has done, his life and death and resurrection. God's favor is undeserved. That's what grace means. But as we've learned in this series, we have this human tendency to think we can do it ourselves. We can save ourselves. We can fix ourselves. We can fix the world in our own wits and our own strength. Maybe you remember a few weeks ago, I used an example, um, an unnamed former politician who in an interview expressed his confidence that he had earned his way into heaven by all the good works he'd done while he was in office. Well, apparently he still thinks that way because it turns out that Michael Bloomberg is tossing his hat into the presidential race we've just been hearing in news reports this week. Now, no emails, please. I'm not making a political statement for or against Michael Bloomberg. It's just a sermon illustration, okay? But you get the idea. We just like to think we can do it ourselves. We can fix ourselves. We can save the world. We can work our way to heaven. The tragedy about that kind of thinking is it's, it's not only wrong-headed, as thousands of years of human history have shown us. It's also a crushing burden Because if our standing before God depends on keeping moral and religious laws, then we're all in trouble. Because we never know where we stand. We never know if we've been good enough or religious enough or sincere enough. We're slaves to these standards, the standards that we in the world set for us. I mean, how good is good enough Mother Teresa good? Even she said that she was not good enough to get her way to heaven. So what hope is there for us? So we end up feeling guilty and ashamed and frustrated and defeated and trapped. Grace sets us free from all that, Paul says. That's the point he's making in this particular section of the letter. 
And as I read through this section, I found at least three things that grace sets us free from, and I'd like to walk through them because chances are one of them is keeping you from being free. Remember that one thing I asked you to think of at the beginning of the message? One thing that's keeping you from living the life you want to live? Chances are it's going to fall into one of these three categories. So let's take a look at them. First, grace sets us free from the world's judgments. Sets us free from the world's judgments. Let's go back and look at verses 26 and 27. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, you'll notice the baptism language there, which is kind of interesting because we are actually having some baptisms today in Lexington and a few of our other campuses. And chances are, scholars tell us, these verses here were probably a part of the baptismal services in the early church. They would repeat these words. Now, Paul makes it really clear here and, and other places that it's not, baptism doesn't save us. Faith saves us. Baptism is just the public declaration of faith. People who are baptized are telling us that they are trusting Christ, that they are dying to an old way of life, lived in their own strength, and rising to a new way of life, trusting and following Christ. And that's what the people who are going to be baptized today will be telling us by their, by their baptism and by their stories. And according to Paul, once we've been baptized by faith into Christ, we are no longer bound by or defined by the world's categories and judgments about us. And in verse 26, Paul names three of those ways the world judges and categorizes people. Race, class, and gender. Racism is the idea that one group of people, one race of people, are superior to other races of people. But not in Christ, Paul says, because in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Slavery is based on the notion that one group of people has the right to own or subjugate another group of people. Not in Christ, Paul says. In Christ, there's neither slave nor free. Sexism is based on the idea that one sex or gender is more worthy or more capable than another. Not in Christ, Paul says. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. Now, those, those are just three of the ways the world passes judgments on people, measures people, Decides who matters, who's worthy, who's important. There are all kinds of judgments and standards the world places on that. Our wealth, our education, our appearance, which neighborhood we live in, what tribe we belong to, how many followers we have. These measures, these judgments just place a crushing burden on us and, and they, they trap us in these worldly categories and definitions they, they become chains that keep us from being the people we want to be, the people we were made to be. Grace breaks those chains. It declares that in Christ, we are fully loved and equally valued as full sons and daughters of, of God through faith in Christ. So that's why in the church, 
There is no room for racism or sexism or classism or ageism or any ism that makes one group of people more important than another group of people. Now, tragically, it's taken the church far too long to recognize this, far too long for us to address these problems and and become the kind of people that we were meant to be. And we still struggle to get it right. So we could talk a long time about this verse, and, and we have on other occasions, and we probably will on other occasions, but we really can't read this verse today without pausing for a moment to publicly acknowledge, renounce, and repent of the racist tendencies that in the history of the church for a long period of time buttressed that social structure called slavery. Ways of thinking about people that even still divide the church today and undermine our witness in the world. And the same thing is true when it comes to relationships between men and women. Whatever your position may be on women in leadership in the church, and I understand there are a variety of positions to be held, but whatever position you hold, we have to acknowledge and renounce and repent of sexist kind of thinking in the church that too often has left women feeling like second-class citizens in the church. It's not that there aren't differences between people. Thank goodness there are differences between people. It's what makes life so interesting. It's that those differences don't define us. They don't determine our worth as human beings. So whether you are, uh, whatever, whatever race you might be, whatever class you might be, whatever your gender whatever your political persuasion might be, whatever your religious background, whatever your sexual orientation, whatever your credit history, whatever your criminal record, whatever your driving background might be, whatever your number is on the Enneagram scale. Grace means we are all equally loved, equally valued, equally free to be sons and daughters of God. And in God's household, there are no favorite children, just loved and valued children. Amen. 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 So. So grace sets us free, first of all, from the world's judgments. And we spent a longer time on that one. We'll move a little more quickly through these next two. Secondly, grace sets us free from religion's requirements. From religion's requirements. Now, the particular religion that Paul's talking about here, of course, is first century Judaism, which had literally hundreds and hundreds of laws. Moral laws, don't steal, don't kill, don't covet, but also ceremonial laws. Laws that govern almost every aspect of daily life. What foods you could eat, what fabrics you could wear at the same time who you could have dinner with, who you could do business with, whether you could rescue your donkey from the ditch or not. All kinds of rules. And those rules had become a crushing burden to the people. And these false teachers, these Judaizers, had come in and said that if you wanted to be a full-fledged child of God, a son or daughter of Abraham, then you had to keep and fulfill all of these ceremonial and moral laws. That was a crushing and impossible burden. 
And so these laws, which God gave to be lifelines, guidelines that would lead us toward life with God, had instead become chains that were keeping people from enjoying life with God. Instead of living like children of God, they were living like slaves in their own household. What was true of first century Judaism is true of just about every religious system on earth. Religion has a way of coming up with lists of rules and rituals by which we demonstrate our, our worth to God, by which we try to get God to bless us. And we've said it already in the series, even in our own tradition, we have these beliefs and these rituals and, and these, these rules by which we try to earn God's favor. If we go to church enough, if we read our Bible enough, if we pray hard enough, if we live holy lives enough, if we give enough money away, all of those kinds of things. But Paul says, Christ has come and changed all of that. Born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. You see, Jesus, by his perfect life, fulfilled every moral and ceremonial command there was. And Jesus, by his sacrificial death, suffered the consequence of breaking every one of those moral and ceremonial laws. And so he has redeemed us. It's the language of the slave market. He has purchased our freedom. He has bought us back out of slavery. So we're no longer slaves in God's household. We are full-fledged sons and daughters. Now, as Rachel in our video explained, there are still things we do and don't do. But we do them because of, not in order to. In other words, we still go to church and read our Bibles and pray and are kind to our neighbors, not in order to get God to love us and be good to us. We do those things because God already loves us and is good to us. So in case you're wondering what that means, it means that God doesn't love you more because you came to church today. I do. <laughs> I like it when you come to church. I love you anyway. If you're home today, I love you at home. I'm glad you're listening there as well, as well. I love you too. <laughs> God loves you, which means we really are free to come to church. We're, we're free to put money in the offering plate. We're free to be kind to our neighbors. We're free to pray and read our Bibles, not in order to get God to love us, but because he already does. We do those things freely. We've said this a couple of times before, the difference between religion and faith. The difference between religion and faith is the difference between do and done. Do and done. Religion is based on the word do. Nearly every religious system comes up with a list of things that we're supposed to do to be right with God and to find our way to heaven. Faith is believing that Jesus has already done all those things for us. And all we have to do is believe and trust what he has done in order to be right with God and be about his work in the world. The difference between do and done. Jesus, by his life and his work on the cross, has done all these things for us. God's riches at Christ's expense. So grace sets us free from the world's judgments. 
It sets us free from religion's requirements. And finally, it sets us free from our own failures. Our own failures. Let's just imagine for a minute that you are able to free yourself from the world's judgments. You don't care what the world says about you. You're not going to let anyone else determine your decisions. You're free of all of that. And let's say you free yourself from religion's requirements. Maybe you reject the notion of religion completely. Maybe you just don't even believe there's a God. So, so you have freed yourself from the world's judgments and from religion's requirements. But what do you do with your own failures? How do you free yourself from the mistakes, the bad decisions, the regrets and the sorrows that you carry with you? Because even if you reject the idea of God and, notion and, 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 uh, and religion, we still all carry around within us a sense of the person that we want to be and the kind of life we want to live. We want to be honest, not dishonest. We, we want to be kind, not cruel. We want to be wise, not foolish. We want to be content, not jealous. jealous. We, we want to be other-centered, not self-centered. But we know that far too often we are not the things we want to be and we end up doing the things we don't want to do. And we end up being jealous and, and angry and hurtful and foolish and selfish. And when we do those things, we hurt other people and we hurt ourselves. And so we end up feeling badly about that. We're sorry and we're sad and sometimes we're guilty and we're ashamed. It's like we're slaves to those things. But where do we go with those feelings? What do we do to be free from our failures? Uh, my son Mark called to my attention uh, an episode of the popular web series Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Maybe you're familiar with this one. It's a lot of fun. The comedian Jerry Seinfeld in each episode gets some classy vintage car and picks up a celebrity or a comedian and they literally drive around and get coffee. And they talk about comedy, about acting, about relationships, and about life. Well, in one of these episodes, uh, Jerry is interviewing Michael Richards, better known to us as Kramer, Jerry's zany, wild-haired neighbor on The Seinfeld Show. Well, Richards was himself, of course, a popular comedian for a lot of years, until a few years ago, when he famously had an angry meltdown in a comedy club and tore into a member of the audience who had been heckling him, complete with racial slurs and overtones. Well, at one point in this interview, Jerry and, and Richards get talking about, about comedy and how comedy is at its best when it's selfless, when it's about the audience and not about the performer. Well, listen to what Michael Richards says after Jerry makes that observation. He says... That's a lesson I learned seven years ago when I blew it in that comedy club. Someone interrupted my act and I lost my temper and lashed out in anger. I should have been working selflessly that evening and most of the time when I'm in that zone, I am self selfless. But not that night. Jerry says back to him, well, you told me you've done a couple comedy sets since then, right? 
No, Richards replies. Sometimes I, I feel like I should, and normally I, I would, but no. You see, Jerry, I busted up after that event. It broke me down. It was a selfish response. I took it too personally. It was, it was just one of those nights. Jerry, it means the world to me that you stuck around, but inside, it still kicks me around. Okay, Jerry says, but that's up to you. That's up to you to say, I've been carrying this bag long enough. I'm going to put it down. And like a lost soul, Richard stares off into the distance and quietly whispers, yeah, yeah. Wishing there was some way he could put down that bag of guilt and shame and get on with his life and his career, but he doesn't know how to do that. And not even his best friend Jerry can help him. Sooner or later, we all get into that kind of a moment when we lose it, when we blow it in big or small ways. We end up hurting ourselves or someone else. And, and we don't know what to do with the guilt and the sorrow and the sadness and the wreckage of that event. And it weighs us down. The truth is there's nothing we can do with it. There's nothing any human being or any religious system can do with it. The only one who can do something with it is Jesus, who God sent into this world, born of a woman, born under law. Jesus, who came to pick up that bag of guilt and shame, the whole human mess of it, and carried it all the way to the cross where he died for it, carried it all the way into the tomb where he laid it to rest, and then stepped out of that tomb and into the sunshine, leaving the sin and the guilt and the death behind and inviting us to follow him into new and eternal life. That's grace. That grace sets us free. You see, Jesus has done it. He's, he's kept the laws that we could never possibly keep. He died the death that we don't want to die. He conquered the enemy we could never defeat. And because he's done those things, we are free. Free from the world's judgments about us. Free from religion's requirements of us. Free from our own sins and failures. Free to start over and actually become the people we were meant to be and live the lives we were meant to live. Now, in a few minutes, folks here in Lexington and some other of our campuses are going to be baptized. And when, and when they step into that water and are lowered under that water and then lifted out, when they step out of that tank, they are going to leave behind them whatever bag they had been carrying around until they met Jesus a bag of fear or guilt or sorrow or shame or regret or whatever it was. They're going to leave it there in the pool and follow Jesus into newness of life. They're going to be free. Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And you can be free too. Don't waste another day carrying around a bag of whatever is keeping you from becoming the person you are made to be and want to be. You don't have to be baptized to be set free. All you have to do is bring that bag to Jesus 
lay it at the cross, and follow him into new and better life. And you can do that today. You can do it in the quietness of these moments. As, as we sing our closing song, as you watch some folks be baptized, as you go home this afternoon, or you can grab any one of us and just say, tell me more about how I can be free. Because grace means we are free from the world's judgments, we're free from religion's requirements, and we're free from our own sins and failures. And as the song and the scriptures say, who the sun sets free is free indeed and free at last. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for speaking into our lives today as, as you do every time we open this book, every time we come together in your name and allow your spirit to speak to us. Thank you, Lord, for this freedom that you offer to us. Lord, we pray for those who are being baptized today. We pray that they might know today that they are fully yours, fully free, fully on their way to being the people you've made them to be. And Lord, if there are some here today still carrying around a bag that's keeping them from that life, Lord, I pray that they might bring it to you today, that they may find your forgiveness and your freedom. And pray that we might live it and share it with a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name, amen.